Lord Morrissey Morrissey and his chum, Postmaster General Puddles, will return soon in... The Disappearance of the Esperance Demagogue. But first, some news on the current whereabouts of Joe. He's in Miami. No, 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 the other Joe. Oh, the other Joe. Yes, news reports have been flooding into the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy hotline that new patron and chief conspirator Joe... Which we assume is their real name, thus identifying them as one of the approximately 90 million people with that name in the English-speaking world... ...has been seen boarding transport going to and from a space known as... Work. These reports are not particularly specific, but we've been led to believe that the transport in question is a luxury yacht, and the workplace is known simply as headquarters. Joe has been described as both productive and attentive in their dealings, which leads us to think that whatever they are doing... Oh, 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 and we think the workplace is in Bavaria or very near to a Bavarian bakery. ...is crucial to the development of whatever sinister conspiracy we are meant to be uncovering. Hmm. Uh, can I ask a quick question? Sure. So these people we are investigating are paying us? Yes. So the thing they're trying to do in secret, they are asking us to uncover? That's right, baby. That's the whole shebang. That, that, that doesn't make sense. Why do people like Joe pay us to uncover their dastardly plots? Oh, Josh, you sweet summer child. Have you not read your David Icke? Have you not supped from the cup of Alex Jones? Are you not immersed in the words of John Rappaport? These conspirators can't help but advertise their terrible deeds. Witness Denver Airport. Marvel at the Georgia Guidestones. Read some Dan Brown. They want us to know what they are up to. They need us to know. It still doesn't make any sense. As someone once said to me, your face doesn't make any sense. Hmm. For someone who's about to become an associate professor, I would have expected a better class of comeback. What can I say? I'm a simple kind of person. Yeah, that you are. But not Joe, though. No. Joe is that special kind of person. A patron. Thanks, Joe. You monster. Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, brought to you today by Josh Addison and Dr. M. Denton. Hello and welcome to the Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy. It's nearly Christmas here in Auckland, New Zealand. I am Josh Edison there, Dr. M. Dentith. Um, and I have just run out of whiskey. Just in time too, because this is probably our last episode for the year. Yeah, I think I think so. I think this is like we like we could squeeze another one in, but maybe we'll just have a little little Christmas bauble next week or something. Just a little, just something little to tide filler. you along yep. until yep. when we resume recording sometime in January. Mm. And that sometime in January is going to be a bit of a flexible a little feast, up in the air, yes, because I am translocating from this lovely location in. Milford, on the north shore of Auckland, to a little coastal town in the south of China called Zhuhai, where I'll be taking up a new position as Associate Professor of Philosophy. Now, I don't know when I'm leaving next month, and I will be doing two weeks of quarantine when I get there, so we're going to have to be a bit flexible mm. as to when things resume, which means this is technically, although actually not, one of our last in-person recordings because there's something special coming up for episode mm. 300, which we're going to 
film in advance. Yeah, no, yes. not, not, not just record. Episode 300 will be... It won't, well, it won't be a televisual spectacular, but it'll make a lot more sense if you mm. actually watch it. I mean, we could kind of do we it could as do an a audio podcast, thing. But I think it'd be missing, missing something. I mean, it, it, it'll kind of work, but at the same time, you do kind of want the video mm. for that one. I think so. I think that's true, yes. But I've said too much. Mm. Or possibly just the right amount. So for our last sort of proper full episode uh, for the year, we have um, another edition of Conspiracy Theory Masterpiece Theatre. Now, um, I, I've, I've been thinking, th these ones tend to, tend to go over time a little bit, I think, because there's always a lot to talk about. But fortunately, this time, we're filming in person, which means we're filming on my camera, which has a fairly hard limit of about 40 minutes before the memory card hits its file size limit and it just plain stops recording. So That's I true. Think... We're, we're turning a technological limitation on mm. an Android phone into a feature for keeping this podcast short and succinct. Yep. So I'll be keeping a track of the time, and uh, if I notice, you'd never you'd never get a short episode if you're recording on an iPhone. No. Well, yes, exactly, exactly. You um, heard it here, folks. Our Android phones make for shorter podcasts. Mm. It's scientifically proven. And shorter is better. Or at least your Android phone makes for short podcasts. I'm actually pretty sure it's not a limitation. Yeah. Well, no, it's, it's a file system limitation yeah. thing. I don't know if it's possible. Yeah, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The point is, we'll try to keep things brief. If I notice us rambling and digressing, either one of us, I will make a point of slapping him soundly about the face to get us back on track. But before we do that, we mm. should open our Christmas presents. Oh, we, we're going to do it. We're going to do it live on air. We this are. Well, in part because the, what I'm giving you really is... It's kind of related to the podcast. Okay. Which means uh, this is a fairly visual thing. I think this to is start a little bit we can, we, we can shake it in front of our microphones on here. Who's going to go first? Uh, I'll go first. Okay, you go first. Because yours may, may require slightly more explanation. Okay. Well, although I know this actually isn't a present for me. And it's not from you because apparently it's fr from one time lord to another. Well, time lord. we did we did establish earlier this year that yeah. you are indeed a doctor and I am indeed a master. Ooh! Oh, Ooh, it's an alien queen. Mm. Just like the thing that burst out of my stomach last week. Mm. But a tiny one, so it can probably fit in your luggage to China. Or my stomach. Or your stomach. Yeah, exactly. So that, that would Thank actually you. be more appropriate. Indeed. Okay, so mine is a little more. Let's get some good. Let's get some good paper wrapping action going on into the microphone there. Yeah. For those of you who can't watch, I don't even. I'm just. I'm just. It's open now. I'm just crumpling the paper more just for the just for the ambience. Okay. I don't know what this is. Eternity We've talked two. about it on the podcast. Have we? Is this a Remem board game or a jigsaw? No. Rem remember Christopher Monkton and the puzzle that you can solve to, oh, to right. basically win his house. This is this a is complete it. version of it. Now, admittedly, the competition has run out, but I'm figuring next year, if I get to a time machine and you can solve this, then we can fund the development of the time machine from the winnings you got from solving the Eternity puzzle. Now, admittedly, that means sense. changing history, which means that the podcast episode we did will now be inaccurate and our lives will go in completely different directions a la sliding doors. But at the same time, you could be winning US $2, $2 million. million. Yes. 
Very well. Oh well, good thing it's good thing it's the holiday season. I'll have, I, I imagine, a week and or the two. Fact, and the fact, probably be enough. And the fact you've got children. Well, yes, exactly. They can. If they get help, bored, probably. you can go look. Just solve this. Mm. You can't be bored when you're trying to solve a puzzle set by Lord Christopher Monkton. Indeed. Now I should point out this was discovered down in Kirikiri Roa by patron of the podcast Georgia, who pointed it out to me in a shop, and mm. I went, oh. Got to have it. That must be a rare item. Six weeks later, there was another copy of it in the very same store. Okay, so I think there's a, a lot of, of people in Hamilton mm. who got very, very bored about 10 years ago, thought they could win their way out of Hamilton, and now they're just putting them on the shelves as they get sold to fools like me, given to fools like you. Excellent. Well, thank you and Merry Christmas then. Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to you mm. all. Right, I think that's the festivities out of the way. Indeed, have you been keeping an eye on the time? Uh, well, it, 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 doesn't, wasted. It, it doesn't matter because we can stop when there's the when we do the chime. You ah. see, that can be that can be the cunning splice between two different shots. So we start anew at the start of the main bit of the episode, which is going to start now. And we're off. We're off in times against us. So this week we are looking at Are Conspiracy Theories Irrational? No, Are Conspiracy Theorists Irrational? That is an excellent start to this episode. Are Conspiracy Theorists Irrational by David Cody. Uh, we're still looking at that epi- uh, issue of Episteme from 2007. Yep. A special so this issue is... entirely devoted to conspiracy theories, which we're covering all but one mm. article from. This one is following on after the uh, the one from the Levy that we looked at last time. Um, so there's a bunch of things we could say about it, but we should probably just pile straight in and uh, and come to our conclusions at the end because that's where conclusions belong. Oh, sometimes you like to front load a conclusion well, I mean, and then explain your reasoning why. That's true. And in fact, this abstract does kind of include the conclusion of it. So shall we read that? Indeed. Would you like to do the honours? Why not? <clears throat> the paper starts as follows. It is widely believed that to be a conspiracy theorist is to suffer from a form of irrationality. After considering the merits and defects of a variety of counts of what it is to be a conspiracy theorist, I draw three conclusions. One, on the best definitions of what it is to be a conspiracy theorist, conspiracy theorists do not deserve the reputation for irrationality. Two, there may be occasions on which we should settle for an inferior definition, which entails that conspiracy theorists are, after all, irrational. Three, if and when we do this, we should recognise that conspiracy theorists so understood are at one end of a spectrum, and the really worrying form of rationality is at the other end. Portentious. Now, this paper's going to be interesting, because the position that David Cody defends in this paper, he will be promptly giving up. Mm. And I notice it does seem a little bit different from the position he defended in the papers of his that we've looked at before. So to my mind, this is one of those academic papers where an author is working through a set of abstract issues they have with a position. They defend one particular conclusion that they've come to, and then a few years later they go, Oh, actually, the consequences of believing that are terrible, so I'm going to go in a completely different direction. So when we come back to David Cody in a few months' time, and we see his revised position, this paper is going to look very interesting indeed. Mm. Okay, well, it starts, uh, it starts with, an, with an introduction. 
as all good papers should, um, which basically go, covers the ground that we've seen a lot before. Um, he says conspiracy theorists are generally assumed to be irrational. This assumption is so deeply entrenched in our culture that when people learn that I defend conspiracy theorists against a variety of criticisms, they often assume that I am AO ipso defending irrationality. I am not. Neither, of course, am I denying that there are irrational conspiracy theorists. Well, let me point out, I really don't like academic authors who just dump bits of Latin or Greek into their yes, papers without ips any explanation. Ipso facto, I've heard AO ipso is a new one on me. And let it stay that mm. way. I remember one time, oh, I'm digressing, I'm digressing, but briefly. <laughs> Your time starts now. Uh, in a paper, we, we, uh, in, a, in a philosophy of mind paper, we had someone use the term soir disson, and the entire class was like, what does that mean? And the lecturer's like, I don't know what that means. Let's find out next. And so next week we came back, it means so-called. Instead of saying so-called, he just chucked, chucked a bit of French in there. Just to yeah, frog things up a bit. It used to kind of be de rigueur, de rigueur de, in mm. philosophy to simply use a bit of Latin and Greek whenever possible. Even since 2007, that culture is shifting dramatically, in part because there are people who are now going through graduate programs who are going, actually, I'm, I'm not entirely sure what Eo Ipso actually means. Mm. I mean, I've got an idea from the context, but at the same time, he could have just said, they often assume that I am also defending irrationality. Mm. Anyway, so he starts by talking about uh, Charles Pigden, whose work we've looked at plenty before, and his definition of what a conspiracy is and what a conspiracy theorist is. And gives a nice, is. pithy version of mm. Charles's argument, which is basically, if you believe in conspiracy theories, you're a conspiracy theorist. If you believe the news and you believe history, you're a conspiracy theorist. No matter what you believe, it turns out, you have to be someone who believes in conspiracy theories because either history is littered with them or you think that history is a lie and mm. thus everything is yep. a conspiracy theory. And so he sort of says that, well, okay, so if everyone's a conspiracy theorist, then A, that must be fine, because we're not all of us all irrational all the time, and B, it kind of means the term's kind of useless then. If everyone's a conspiracy theorist, then it tells us nothing to, to say that someone's a conspiracy theorist, um, which I thought was a little bit, he glossed over that a little bit quickly. I mean, it's, there's nothing inherently wrong with a conspiracy theorist, but surely the point is that not all conspiracy theories are created equal. Now, see, a lot of this is going to rest upon how he defines mm. who counts as a conspiracy theorist, as we see later on in this paper. Mm. Um, but so he, he says, he says um, I suspect that Pigden would hardly, heartily endorse this idea, that being the idea we should just get rid of the term conspiracy theorist. But there are two problems with leaving things there. One is that it is not likely that the concept is going away in the short to medium term, and virtually certain that it is not going away as a result of being deconstructed in philosophy journals. The second is that some dismissive uses of the concept seem to be legitimate. Dun dun dun! Mm. So we go into um, section two, conspiracy theorists in the context of discovery. So now is when we start actually looking into what, how he defines conspiracy theorist. And it happens in a few different ways. Indeed. So he starts off by saying it might be useful to compare conspiracy theorists to theorists of another kind. Number theorists. It's a classic philosophy move. Talk about a kind of theory that virtually no one knows anything about. Mm. A person does not qualify as a number theorist just in virtue of subscribing to a theory about numbers. The fact that I subscribe to the theory that two is even does not, alas, make me a number theorist. Likewise, we shouldn't say that someone is a conspiracy theorist just because he subscribes to a theory that posits conspiracy. 
which seems like a bit of a reach as far as analogies go. Um, we'll see in a second that he's, he's working towards a definition of conspiracy theorists that basically makes it the same sort of theorist as a number theorist or something like that. But I, it, and I mean, it doesn't... This, yeah, this, this ends up being a bit problematic because most people who work in the philosophy of mathematics will go, I mean, it's true you're not an explicit number theorist who holds to notions of how set theories work, theories of irrational numbers and the like. But it's also quite obvious from the way that you use mathematics that if pressed you'd be able to explain what you mean by these things and come up with a rudimentary number theory of a kind. So it's a difference between being a number theorist in kind of capital letters mm. versus, well, I'm, I suppose I am a number theorist because I use numbers. I just wouldn't be very good at describing what my number theory is, but I'm fairly sure I've got one. Mm. Um, but so, so David Cody is saying this because he basically wants to uh, propose a definition of conspiracy theorist uh, which goes as follows. A conspiracy theorist therefore may be defined as a person who is unusually willing to investigate conspiracy. A conspiracy theorist so understood actively investigates whether conspiracies have taken place or are taking place, and if he discovers them, tries to publicly identify the conspirators. For the rest of this section, I'll use the expression conspiracy theorist in this sense, and he does. Which seemed a little bit, the, the first thing that, I mean, when we looked at his um, earlier paper, Conspiracy Theories and Official Stories, the thing that struck me right from the start was that he seemed to be basing everything on the idea that how our definitions of conspiracy theory and so on should match the more colloquial usage of the words. And yet here he is proposing a definition that seems to be kind of opposed to the more colloquial meaning of conspiracy theory. Wow, I mean, it's a little bit hard to tell because I think... I think the kind of conspiracy theorist he has in mind, and I think this becomes clear later on in the paper, is someone who irrationally believes in some kind of conspiracy theory. So he is kind of rejecting Pigton's argument that it turns out we're all conspiracy theorists of some stripe, because he's going actually to make sense of the common usage of conspiracy theory. We need to narrow down the concept to some notion which describes what people usually mean when they accuse someone of being a conspiracy theorist. So in that respect, he probably is being slightly consistent with his earlier work, but at the same time, not being consistent with how we, he talked about how we should talk about conspiracy theories in that work. But anyway, we needn't, needn't, needn't insist on consistency. People are allowed to change their minds and views evolve and what have you. Um, and st straight away after defining, making this definition, he does make what I thought was quite a, quite a good point, which is, he says, notice that conspiracy theorists so understood need not be particularly inclined to believe in conspiracies. A person may quite rationally investigate whether a conspiracy has occurred without believing that it has, if discovering that it occurred, if it did, is important enough. And then talks about um, political conspiracies and politics and says how basically it's um, the, the sorts of conspiracies that could show up in the political world are important. We, we, we need to know about them. The, uh, a functioning democracy requires, uh, relies on an informed voter base and any conspiracies that would seek to hide information or to, um, uh, uh, to, to muddy the waters of information, what have you, um, is something that should be investigated and, and found out about. Yes, I mean, as they say, the price of freedom is eternal vegetables. Exactly, that is exactly what they, it's what I say.
I said it just before you were listening. And I'm a vegan, so mm. I know what mm. eternal vegetables are like. High um, in fibre. Mm. That's what a democracy needs, a high fibre diet. Fiber. Oh, yeah. so much fibre. Uh, yeah, so anyway, he says... Um, so he concludes this by saying that, of course, the prima facie importance of exposing political conspiracies when they occur does not on its own entail the rationality of seeking evidence of political conspiracies. If political conspiracies never or hardly ever take place, then searching for evidence of them would be prima facie irrational. But conspiracy, political conspiracies do take place and on a regular basis, which I think brings in a few different points. Um, and he talks about uh, how Charles Pigden and his papers goes through history and talks about you know, how, how the fact that um, conspiracy theories are in the political sphere and in history are basically ubiquitous, which made me think ubiquity. We've, we've done a paper on ubiquity in the past. We have, by mm. one, I believe, Lee Basham. Yes, I mean, Lee Basham wrote the book, or wrote, wrote the paper at least, on the ubiquity and resilience of conspiracy theories. And we, I remember when we looked at Neil Levy's paper last last instalment, I was surprised when he brought up a couple of points that seemed to be things that Lee Basham explicitly um, uh, dealt with. And then again, we sort of came up with another point that I, I would expect a person making that point to cite Lee Basham. But again, he doesn't. I wonder, is, is it just a case of the, the Australian uh, philosophers sort of talking amongst themselves because it's easy, you don't have time gaps and distance and communication so, issues, or is he...? Yes and no. So you could understand that for, say, David's first paper, maybe when he wrote it before it was printed in the book, Conspiracy Theories, a Philosophical Debate, he was unaware of Basham's work. But David's the editor of this volume, has presumably invited Lee to mm. contribute a paper to it, so he should now be aware of it. I think it's probably more the case, and I think this is fair to say, David doesn't quote much. So he will only quote things which are directly mm. related to what he's saying, either as a, I'm furthering the idea of X, or I'm replying to the ideas of Y. He doesn't, in his work, tend to then go, also other people have written upon this, see this. So it seems to be his particular style is to simply underplay citations and mm. not do the kind of, if you want to know more about this, see this thing, this thing, and this thing. And I kind of know this from having edited David's work in taking conspiracy theories seriously, I would on occasion suggest it might be nice to link this point to earlier points made by this. And he was quite resistant to putting those references in. Oh, well, there you go. I mean, yeah. it's, not, it's, not, it's not a hole in the paper or anything, I don't think. No, it's just no, I was it's surprised just, to it's see just this a point a very made. different style. Yeah, yeah. anyway. Um, so but the, the other thing I want to note here, so this claim, if political conspiracies never or hardly ever take place, then searching for evidence of them would be prima facie irrational. I think that's plain wrong. If you live in a world where it's impossible to conspire, or conspiring is incredibly difficult, then it might be the case it's prima facie irrational to search for evidence of conspiracies. But if you live in a world where it is logically possible that people could start conspiring, even though they have never conspired in the past... Mm then actually some vigilance seems like a good idea there, because if the system can be rotted, you can expect that at some point in time, someone's probably going to try. Mm. So I don't think it's irrational to be looking for evidence of conspiracies just because you don't think they take place. You might go, 
that might be a bit of wasted effort, but at the same time, a bit of vigilance. Something we need to know, be yeah. sure of. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you need to be eating your freedom vegetables. Mm. No, fair enough. Okay. So that's that's sort of section two where he's brought up this definition, this, this one possible definition of conspiracy theorists, people who are sort of particularly into investigating conspiracies, not simply anyone who happens to hold, believe uh, that a particular conspiracy theory exists because that's everyone. Um, but now he moves he moves on to a second one um, into section three, conspiracy theorists in the, the context of justification. Occurs. Yeah. So he ends section two by saying, conspiracy theorists run the risk of becoming over-invested in the prevalence and significance of conspiracy, leading them to exaggerate evidence for conspiracies or ignore evidence against them. And then moves into section three saying, if this happens, they will be conspiracy theorists in another sense as well. To say that someone's a conspiracy theorist in this sense is to say that they are excessively willing to believe conspiracy. And of course, recall before he was just saying in that other sense, you're not, you're not required to believe these things. You're just interested in investigating them. Um, so he says the problem with such conspiracy theorists is not necessarily that they believe in too many conspiracies. They may believe in just one vast conspiracy. Rather, the problem is that they tend to exaggerate the extent to which conspiracies, however many of them may be, explain observed phenomena. And this, this then, uh, he wants to say, is an irrational sense of being a conspiracy yeah. theorist. And so he states, this is a form of irrationality. And it is certainly what some people have in mind when they talk dismissively of conspiracy theorists. But this rhetoric has the potential to be extremely misleading. We don't normally stipulate that the theorists about a certain subject matter are irrational by definition. No. No, so it's not, it's, these people aren't irrational because they believe conspiracy theories uh, per se. There's nothing in the nature of conspiracy theories that means just believing in one makes you irrational. And he points out that um, you know, flat earth theorists are obviously an ir irrational, um, but they're not irrational by definition. Their irrationality consists in the fact that their putative subject matter obviously does not exist. Conspiracies, by contrast, obviously do. Um, so, yeah, so the irrationality comes in from the excessive belief, the, um, the, the uh, willing to um, believe too heavily in conspiracy theories and, and, and presumably the reluctance to disbelieve in them or to believe in evidence against them. And indeed, this has a label in the academic literature. This is conspiracism. Right. And it's a paper by someone on that. I think it's me. It's quite positive. That is your Twitter handle. It better be you. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, so he thinks, he, he says, you know, that this this um, definition, it's, it's a little bit patchy, um, but... He says it may be justified to some extent by widespread usage, which has its own authority on questions of meaning. And that's, that now, now we're getting a bit, a bit, bit more Aristotelian. I think it's, you it's, do it's like the way people Aristotle. Do, I, th I think he likes his Aristotle. Is the thing. So yes. Yeah, so, so so now he said. So we've got one definition of conspiracy theorist uh, under which a, that that person is not. By, by, by according to that meaning, irrational, and then we have another definition of conspiracy theorist and a person, if you define conspiracy theorist that way, then you are justified in saying conspiracy theorists are irrational. And then he gets, then he gets to his third point. He wants yes, to so make where things are then, not so sure. Then he wants to start talking about the other issue. So you have conspiracies, and thus you have theories about conspiracies, which you might want to investigate to check whether those conspiracy, those putative conspiracies are going on. Then you have the conspiracists under his definition, the people who excessively believe conspiracy theories 
and act in a kind of irrational way. And then he goes, there's a third group. And those are the people who irrationally don't believe that conspiracies occur, mm. which he then calls, the t- uh, he labels them coincidence theorists, saying in the paper, this is a term that has come up recently. And it is true back around 2005, 2006, 2007. People were talking about coincidence theorists. It hasn't really mm. settled into common usage at Wasn't all. Wasn't a term I'd heard of before I read this paper. I mean, sometimes uh, they get referred to as cock-up theorists, but mm. a cock-up theorist is not the same thing as a coincidence theorist under this particular definition. Because the kind of people that Cody is concerned about might not even exist. Well, no. So he gives examples of the kinds of things a conspiracy theorist might believe. Uh, sorry, a coincidence theorist might believe. He says, A hardened coincidence theorist can watch a plane crash into the second tower of the World Trade Center without thinking there is any connection between this event and the crashing of another plane into the other tower of the World Trade Center less than an hour earlier. Similarly, a coincidence theorist could be aware that all 175 editors of Rupert Murdoch's publications around the world endorsed the invasion of Iraq without seeing any connection between their expressed views and those of their boss. And I've certainly never heard a person express those views, and I have a hard time imagining a person any person who would believe in believe things like that. So I think the issue here is Cody is responding to hyperbole with more hyperbole. So he's going, well, look, if you believe that conspiracy theorists generally are irrational and thus they believe in conspiracies that do not exist, then I'll counter that with the coincidence theorist who is unable to ever connect the dots. The problem is he doesn't really make that move Mm. explicitly. I think that's what he's trying to do, which is, oh, if you think conspiracy theorists are weird, you'd think that coincidence theorists are weird too. That's a reductio ad absurdum, ipso facto, more Latin. We shouldn't actually use either terms, but it's not clear from the way he's written it that he's actually engaging him in hyperbole here. So I'm assuming that's what he's doing doing he's going this is ridiculous which is why you shouldn't believe the other ridiculous Mm. thing but it It doesn't really come across that that. way yeah yeah and at any rate having talked about the um, coincidence theorist he says there is also another sort of people who are uh, irrationally reject conspiracy theorists and he calls these people institutional theorists and this is more of the that sort of the Hanlon's razor never never attribute to malice what can be attributed to stupidity or whatever he's people who are don't believe in in um, conspiracy theories and prefer to believe uh, in, in sort of institutional explanations of things. Um, he gives the example of um, Edward S. Herman and Noam Chomsky, who talk in the example of their book of how they they prefer explanations that talk about sort of systemic, society-wide, institutional explanations of things, and kind of reject the idea of of sort of, I, I don't know, is it, is it the whole great man theory of history, the idea that the But also the fact that Chomsky, Chomsky rejects the idea of conspiracy theories as well. Mm. He, doesn't, he doesn't think that people should talk about them because he thinks they're intellectually wasteful. He doesn't like his theories being labelled as conspiracy theories. He's very much going, no, 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 don't talk about conspiracy theories, only talk about these things going on here. Mm. 
But uh, uh, Cody doesn't have any truck for this line of thought. He says one problem with this whole line of thought is that impersonal explanations in terms of institutional structures and market forces are not inconsistent with conspiratorial explanations. Many institutions owe their existence, at least in part, to conspiracies. Think of the United States government's debt to the conspiratorial activities of the Founding Fathers. And many institutions themselves regularly conspire. Indeed, many institutions do little but conspire. Think of the CIA or the KGB. Um, so yes, believing in believing that institutions uh, are the the, the main explanatory force behind things doesn't mean you can discount conspiracy theories. And then also the problem is, I, I think you sort of he said that I think people like to talk about that because then the solutions to problems are we need to change these institutions, which seems like a more a more sophisticated, more grown up solution than simply saying, well, we need to get rid of these conspirators. We need to to stop the evil people. But he says, while there's certainly something to this concern, the alternative strategy of concentrating on systemic or institutional change comes with its own dangers. First, it can be unrealistic, at least in the short term where most of us live our lives. Second, as history has often demonstrated, the new institutions may be worse than the ones they replaced. And then moves on to section four, conspiracy theorists and official stories. And now Which we're back in basic, more yeah, familiar ground. He is replying to Levy. Mm. So he, talked, he talks of his original paper, Conspiracy Theories and Official Stories, where he said that conspiracies were opposed to official stories. Uh, he sort of paraphrases himself as saying that therefore conspiracy theorists are unusually reluctant to believe official statements. And so then looks at Neil Levy's Radically Socialized Knowledge and Conspiracy Theories, the last paper we looked at. And he, he agrees with some of what Levy says and disagrees with some of it. He agrees that there are epistemic authorities whose, whose pronouncements we should believe in, but he doesn't agree that these pronouncements are necessarily the quote-unquote official story. Yes, because official is doing a rather special mm. set of work here, rather than simply being epistemic authority. When something becomes official, it's been, it's been endorsed by a particular institution, and the connection between that institution and epistemic expertise is not necessarily tight. Mm. So he says, Levy quite rightly distinguishes epistemic authorities from other authorities, in particular governmental ones, but although the statements of governmental authorities on certain topics may, and in certain circumstances perhaps must, have official status and hence be official stories, the statements of epistemic authorities often have no official status. And he, he mentions Lysenkoism, which we talked about all the way back in episode and 226. the geneticists in the USSR who opposed mm. Lysenkoism, who were the appropriate epistemic authorities, but had no official mm. endorsement. Got thoroughly sidelined. And so, so yeah, so, so where Levy pointed out, as he did, that government and epistemic authorities can disagree, and I think the example he gave was talking about the US government's official position on climate change versus the position of actual climate change scientists. So, whereas in that case, Levy said, so that may, but it's the epistemic authorities, the ones who, who have the official story. Cody disagrees with this. He says the official story is what the people in, in power say, essentially. Um, and th and that's most that that is more what people mean, I think, when they talk about the official story. And I, I don't know. I, I casting my mind back a couple of weeks. I don't know if we actually criticised Levy explicitly for this, but we probably should have because it does seem to be a good point. I mean, Levy just I have of, criticised him in print. Well, there you go. So yes, this this idea that 
uh, he, he defines official story as the official story as the story of the people who are you know, qualified to, to make that pronouncement, but that isn't really what we mean by official story most of the time. No, it's the... no, we tend to take it to be an announcement made by people with institutional credence, but whoever has institutional credence doesn't necessarily make them someone who's an epistemic expert. Mm. Um, he talks about Levy's comments on the media, which I don't think we talked about last time because they're mostly in a big footnote. He did, I remember in, there was a footnote in, in Levy's paper where he sort of said, kind of excused the media for getting things wrong on the invasion of Iraq uh, post 9-11 and sort of said, oh, that was because they'd been led astray by um, by the, their sources and what happened. By that but, naughty Tony Blair. Naughty Tony Blair. They're making but, a musical um, about him, you know. Really? Yeah. Mm. But that's not, uh, that, that, that seems like a bit of a, a cop-out, and especially because the media is, is an author, they might not be an epistemic authority, but they are an authority, and what they say is often taken as being the official story. So uh, Cody finishes up saying it may be that in, in an ideal society, official stories would carry an epistemic authority, such that it would almost always be rational to believe them, but that is not our society, nor, I suspect, is it any society that has ever been or ever will be. So he 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 quote he do, he does point out that um, he goes and quotes his previous papers to sort of say now look I'm not saying the government story is always the official story they can differ he says in this paper although governments are obvious sources of what I've been calling official stories they are not the only sources both the media and the academy academy are in virtue of their power to influence opinion sources of official stories as well. I think that seems to be the salient point. It's the, um, the, 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 the properly constituted epistemic authorities may be completely on the money, but if they can't persuade anyone that what they're saying is true, then their story isn't the official story. No. Mm. Now, because Cody is concerned that maybe Levy has got the wrong end of the stick by replying to him, Cody goes, look, I will provide an actual definition of what I mean by an official story. So it says, now it would be more explicit and define an official story as a version of events propagated by an institution which has power to influence what is widely believed at a particular time and place. I think this definition conforms to ordinary usage. Furthermore, it is, outside of any specific context, epistemically neutral. Mm. And what he means by that is that the, the, the sorts of institutions that he's talking about, they can have the power to influence on account of them being reliable and trustworthy, on account of them being epistemically good, in quote marks. But they can also have the power to influence because of, say, they hold a monopoly on the information or because what they say conforms to people's existing prejudices and so on. They could be epistemically quote-unquote bad. So it's not, it's not a statement of the institutions themselves, whether or not... The, the influence they wield and, and the, the official stories they promote are intrinsic to them. So he, moving on to um, the, the final full section before the conclusion, which is section five, conspiracy theorists and intellectual autonomy. Um, Cody now has a look at the ideas that, that Levy and, and Brian L. Keeley before him were looking at and, and the, the downsides um, of... The, being the, the the bad sort of conspiracy theorist. Um, so you'll recall Keeley sort of said it can lead to a, 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 a basically being too sceptical, a, a too broad scepticism. Um, and Levy was said, took it even further than that and said that it, it, you can end up cutting yourself off from the sorts of uh, epistemic intellectual 
apparatus that we all rely on when um, coming up with views uh, every day. Uh, in other words, um, we can end up being having having a too much intellectual autonomy. It's the uh, title of the section. So he says, Levy, like Keeley, seems to have misidentified the nature of the debate between defenders of the official story and conspiracy theorists. Conspiracy theorists, understood as people predisposed to be sceptical of official stories, are not, or need not be, any more sceptical about epistemic authority or expertise as such than other people. Rather, they merely have a particular view about who the epistemic authorities or experts are. Which, I mean, on the face of it, that does, that does kind of make a bit of sense, especially if you look in this day and age, the people who, you know, reject the MSM, um, but will think, you know, the, the real authorities are Donald Trump or, or, or previously Fox News, although mm. now they've gone and fallen out of favour as well. Now it's Newsmax. But I, I do feel this is another unkind gloss on Keeley, mm. in that Keeley is talking about mature unwarranted conspiracy theories where it turns out that if the conspiracy theory simply hasn't gained adequate new evidence to show that people should change their mind then there's something going wrong both at the evidence and the expertise level there he's not saying this is true of conspiracy theorists in general he's talking about a particular kind of mm. conspiracy theorist yes so possibly doesn't apply but at any rate um, Cody wants to say that um, there are two problems with the idea that um, trusting in your own epistemic resources is, is an argument against conspiracy theories in general. First of all, he wants to say that being irrational, quote-unquote, in this way can be a good thing and looks at the idea of information cascades, which uh, is the idea when you can get something that's being being has come up amongst possibly a small group of people, but it sort of gets um, repeated by other people who then repeat it by other people who then repeat it by other people. And so by the time a person encounters this idea, it's no longer actually clear that it's really just the theories of a, of, of a handful who, who kicked this whole thing off. Um, and so you may, you may think that you're doing what Levy says and, and you know, relying on the whole body of, of, of human knowledge in, in um, determining what's right and wrong, but really you're not. And indeed in that case, um, relying on your own um, epistemic resources would act, could, could actually be a good thing and might motivate you to look into it and um, find, realize that there's, um, there's, th this is on much shakier ground. Um, in fact, let's, let's, let's give Cody's word on it. He says, if the early answers exhibit a clear pattern, people later in the sequence may decide to ignore their own epistemic resources and follow the crowd. This belief-forming strategy can be entirely rational from an individual perspective, especially if expertise on the question at issue is reasonably evenly spread amongst the group. The epistemic danger of the strategy, however, is that it can lead to relevant evidence being hidden from those later in the sequence. Thus, the epistemic authority of thousands of people can be largely illusory, because most of them have had their beliefs determined by a handful of people at the beginning of the sequence. I'm sure we've talked about cases like this in the past, but I can't for the life of me remember when. But I've definitely had conversations about this in the past. I remember sort of people talking to some weird and wacky belief and saying, how can people possibly believe this? And, and it always seemed to me, well, okay, you start with some sort of bullshit premise, like if, if uh, I think it was in the context of your Jordan Petersons or your Stephen Molyneux or something, you start with some bit of a historical nonsense or idea that, that it can be scientifically proven that certain races are superior to other races or something, something obviously bollocks. 
and then from that you draw this conclusion, and from that conclusion you draw another conclusion, and from that one you draw another conclusion, and a person who comes into it at this point may simply sort of see, you know, A leads to B leads to C leads to D leads to E. You may only come in at the point where it says D leads to E, which might be quite a sensible inference, and so therefore it looks sensible because you're not aware that it started from nonsense in the first place. Yeah. Yeah, there is there I mean there are clear examples of cases who of cases who of mm. people who get a belief which was kind of settled earlier on in the sequence and then follow through from that point without ever having looked at what A, B and C was before they jumped in at D. And so information cascades are an issue. Information cascades are an issue in all kinds mm. of beliefs. And indeed, one of the frequent examples you get in the philosophy of science and the sociology of science is that most of us have a fairly naive belief in science when you start thinking about it. Because most of us haven't done any of the foundational work to be able to understand why we think climate change is occurring, why we think that mRNA vaccines aren't a bad idea. We're simply going, oh, look, but all these other people over here, they don't believe it's a bad idea. I agree with them. And so I've caught up with where they are now, and I can read a few Wikipedia articles, read Scientific American, skim the abstracts in nature, and now, now I feel as if I know everything about epidemiology. This is a problem generally hmm. for most beliefs in a complicated world, because most of us aren't, to use the old parlance, the gentleman scientist sitting in their armchair going... So from first principles, mm. I think of a single unit, and then I go, what if I double that unit? No, now I have a set. Now I could have multiple sets of different sizes. Oh, now I've got the idea of complicated addition, but also various means of subtraction, and also multiplication. And if you don't stop me, I'm going to continue going down this mathematical rabbit hole. Is it time for you to slap you full across the face? Yes. Well, I'm not going to. No. Um, just the threat of it's enough. Uh, okay, so so that's, so he has... Cody wants to say there are two problems with, with Levy's idea, that it's it's bad to, to rely solely on your own epistemic resources. So one of them is that sometimes it's actually a good thing to do this, um, it, it, it might clue you into the fact that you're sort of in this information cascade sort of section uh, sequence. Um, and then he also wants to object to this saying that, that being irrational in this way, that relying on your own epistemic resources, um, isn't anything to do with conspiracies per se. Um, he says, even if such intellectually autonomous people did deserve criticism, they do not deserve to be called conspiracy theorists in either a pejorative or a non-pejorative sense, because the errors have nothing in particular to do with conspiracy. So I think that's basically the point you yeah. just made. It's, yeah, and, it's, it's a general thing. It's not... And I mean, and you see nice examples of this, people who believe in perpetual motion machines. They don't believe in a conspiracy by big inertia to stop people mm. in believing in the idea of perpetual motion. Instead, they go, I'm rather clever. People are wrong to think you can't generate a perpetual motion machine. I mean, I've seen them in shops. And so they, they generate these beliefs and they do all the self-sustaining work and they do their own research. There's nothing conspiratorial about that. And we find examples of that everywhere. So it's kind of wrong to specifically 
pick upon the pejoratively labelled conspiracy theorists for something which is just a general thing about beliefs in the world, mm. sometimes people go down rabbit holes and not every ra rabbit hole is a pejoratively labelled conspiracy theory. It's not. That's true. Some of them have rabbits in them. It's true. Mm. And if you can fit a human being down a rabbit hole, either a very small human or it's a very large rabbit. Mm. Well, I mean, Winnie the Pooh, he, he, he fit down one and he was a bear. Like, bears are bigger than people. It's true, but he was a poo bear. He was a teddy bear. Yes, that's true. And he was specifically a poo bear. And he was, yes. Poo. I fear we're digressing. But that's okay, because we're at, we're at part six, the conclusion, um, which basically sums up, uh, essentially, the, um, the three points uh, he made right back in the abstract. So he says in his conclusion, the highly polemical way in which the expression conspiracy theorist is often used means that it's unlikely that any single definition can be thought of as correct. The question, therefore, is not what is a conspiracy theorist, but how and whether we should talk about conspiracy theorists. So he, 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 he agrees. Okay, so, look, let, me, let me just... Mm? It is unlikely that any single definition can be thought of as correct. Philosophers can stipulate meaning, though. So you can go look for the purposes of discussion, what we should be talking about is X. And arguably, the kind of work that Pigton has been doing, which is to say, if you think conspiracy theorist just refers to this pejorative class, you're a moron. We're all conspiracy theorists. Pigton is engaged in reclaiming the term by saying, look, we should just stipulate if you believe in conspiracies, you are a conspiracy theorist, and you believe in conspiracies, so you are a conspiracy theorist. Mm. Yeah, so, but he, he agrees right at the beginning of his conclusion that it, it is a bad thing that the label conspiracy theorist can be used to silence people or to stifle debate. And, but the question now becomes, okay, so what do we do? What do we do about that fact? Uh, we, we know this is a thing we've talked about time and time again, that you know, the, the, the whole John Key, Nicky Hager thing, you can say of a person, authorities can say of a person, they're just a conspiracy theorist. And the public can go, I mean, that's right, but mm. is their conspiracy theory wrong? So in order to stop the authorities from getting away with this, what can we do? Well, so the first possibility, um, Cody suggests that, Pigden suggests, that we should just get rid of the label altogether. Which I don't think is true. Yes, I don't, I don't think Pigden would agree with that. I think that it's, it's, it still matters that what you're a conspiracy theorist about. So the fact that we may, be all, may all be them doesn't mean that it's, it's um, a, a useless term. But so he says, so that's, that's one possibility. The other possibility is that we could talk about conspiracy theorists without the negative connotations of irrationality. Uh, the, in other words, using the, the first of his two definitions of conspiracy theorists. Which allows that people can investigate conspiracy theories without necessarily believing them. Mm -hmm. Or we could use the more pejorative definition that, that, that he also gave, but says that if we do go with that definition of what it means to be a conspiracy theorist, then we should also acknowledge the other extreme, these people who are, for, for whatever reason, they're, they're coincidence theorists, they're institutional theorists, they're just overly credulous and trusting, um, and so that they are irrationally disinclined to believe in conspiracies. And he says that's a little bit trickier because we don't actually have a catch-all term for people who are uh, uh, irrationally uh, disbelieving of conspiracy theories. 
Um, and so finishes his paper by saying, until we come up with a single expression to cover all the ways, all these ways of irrationally avoiding belief in conspiracy, we need to radically change the way we think about conspiracy theorists. Which I mean, probably true. Yeah, that is probably true. But I, th I think this this does seem to be, and correct me if I'm wrong, but this does seem to be still mired in a sort of generalist kind of thinking. He wants to talk about, even though he's he's allowing for different senses of what it means to be a conspiracy theorist, he wants to be able to say that they are either irrational or irrational per se, when it seems like really what you want to say is they're not inherently either, and what makes them irrational or irrational is the particular conspiracy, conspiracy theory, theory that they espouse, promote, mm. or advocate. And as I say, this paper is interesting because as we will see relatively soon, Cody's subsequent work is don't use the terms. Don't talk about conspiracy theories. Don't talk about conspiracy theorists. They're both weaponized terms used by people in positions of power as propaganda tools to label views that people in power don't like as being irrational. Mm. So at the moment he's going, oh, I mean, we could follow Pigton and just get rid of the term, but really I think that's, that's not going to work because people will continue to study these things and the term is in use. And in a few years time he's going, nope, get rid of it. Just get rid of it. Mm. Whereas, I mean, the likes of Lee Basham are putting forward more particularist views at this point in time, aren't they? Yeah, Has the term yeah, particularism showed up? You said there was no, one, one No, no. So there's a, there's a paper coming up which is Conspiracy Theories and Fortuitous Data. And that is where Joel Bunting and Jason Taylor will suddenly go, actually, we can talk about this as being generalism and particularism. And then people go, ah, those are the labels we were looking mm. for the entire time. Well, there we go. And it's kind of fascinating because it's their only contribution. And I believe they've both left academia, so they might not even be aware how well cited they now are. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, so I mean, like the papers, the last few papers we've looked at, I thought there were a bunch, of, there were a bunch of good points in in there, a bunch of things that I agreed with. But yeah, I think the whole thing is still stuck in trying to be uh, a generalist about these things when generalism just seems to cause more problems. Precisely. Mm. Now you know what doesn't cause problems? Arsenic. And patron bonus content, ah, specifically, yes, right. specifically a fascinating That's article what I mean by Hugh Mann, mm. uh, which we'll be looking at in relative depth after the break. Then we'll be talking about, oh look, an ex-cop who held a man at gunpoint for those fraudulent ballots that didn't exist in the US. What a that, scamp. That sounds mm. fun. Then we'll be following up with actual evidence of fraudulent voting in the US, and you won't believe who was responsible for that. And then a follow-up on the poisoning of Alexei Navini, and an interesting story about how the World Health Organization might be conspiring with the government of Italy to ensure that a particular Italian health minister isn't embarrassed by a report on COVID-19. Hmm. Well, there we go. So if you would like to hear more about that and you're currently a patron, then uh, I've got good news for you because you can. If you'd like to hear more about that and you're not currently a patron, then, then it's as simple as becoming one. 
Just like Joe. Yep, just go to uh, patreon.com and look for the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy and you can sign yourself up. And if you um, are quite happy just being a regular audience member, well, that's fine as well. And no matter no matter where you are and how much money you give us, uh, thank you for listening. And I guess, I guess sort of Merry Christmas and Yuletide felicitations and all of that business. And also, just in case you're listening to these episodes out of order at some point in the future, Happy New Year's. Good Easter, a uh, good Yom Kippur, a happy Ra- Ramadan, uh, good Thanksgiving, uh, and basically any other festive day that you year. That might, yeah, yeah Chinese yeah, New well, Year. Gongsi Fak Kai? No. There's, uh, uh, there's the Cantonese, Cantonese and the Mandarin, and I always mix the two. I always get half, speak half in one language and half in the other. Anyway, yes, so. Just, just, just general, general yeah. well wishing. I think. Yeah, I mean, whenever there is a holiday, we wish you well. Mm. Uh, but for now, I think we'll sign off for for twenty twenty, a peach of a year. Uh, and, yeah. And talk yeah. to you all another time. Yeah. yeah, we'll talk to you later. Hopefully, in the glory of twenty twenty one, a year that I would like to think cannot be as stressful as 2020 but i'm beginning to think actually might be Mm. oh well goodbye and good luck yeah good luck you're going to need it You've been listening to the podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, starring Josh Addison and Dr. M.R. Extenter, which is written, researched, recorded, and produced by Josh and M. You can support the podcast by becoming a patron via its Podbean or Patreon campaigns. And if you need to get in contact with either Josh or M, you can email them at podcastconspiracy at gmail.com or check their Twitter accounts, Monkey Fluids and Conspiracism. December, what a night.